Hello and welcome to the Decision Intelligence Podcast with Cassie Kolarkov. Here's Using the Birthday Paradox to Teach Probability Fundamentals. Read for you by the author. What are the odds that two of your friends share a birthday? Short answer, it depends how many friends you have. In this episode, we'll cover some probability basics in birthday language. Our goal is figuring out this perennial stats homework chart topper together. <clears throat> if you have n people in a group, what's the probability that there is at least one shared birthday? If you haven't thought about this one, take a moment to guess. Imagine the group has n equals 30 people in it. What are the chances that two people get their cake on the same day? Or if that's daunting, just answer this. Would you prefer to bet me 10 bucks that there are birthday duplicates or 10 bucks that there aren't? Let's see how well-oiled your intuition is. Well, we're going to get to the answer as the punchline. But first, let's develop all the Lego pieces that you need to solve the birthday problem yourself. This episode occasionally mentions some formulas. They're not really the point. You should be listening for how various concepts are used together. But if you want to keep up with some of those formulas, listening with a pen and paper may be the way to go. Let's start with the most basic basics. For sake of pure pedantry, let's get this eye-roll-inspiring revelation right out of the way. Probability lives between 0 and 1, or 0% and 100% if you prefer. Cool. Now you know why probabilities can't be negative and why a sentence like, I'm like a thousand percent sure that they're going to be late, turns data folk an alarming shade of, like, purple. There are three main approaches to thinking about probability. One, event-based. This involves enumerating events and counting them. Two, frequency-based. This involves distribution symbolizing how things would shake out if we observed our phenomenon in infinite parallel universes. Three, subjective. This involves distribution symbolizing human belief in what's likely, ideally expressed in terms of bets, since putting your money where your mouth is reduces your tendency to spew nonsense. Now, in case you took a stats class with a professor who didn't apply the wooden mallet to the head style of emphasizing the obvious, let me spell out where these tend to lurk in your textbook. The early chapters tend to start out with the event-based approach to probability. That's because it's an easy playground to get some of the basics across, and most humans, probably, already have an intuition for it. Examples. What are the chances your fair coin comes up tails? Half. What are the chances you roll a six on a six-sided die? One out of six. What's happening here? The formula here is probability equals numerator over denominator, where the numerator is the number of ways the event we're interested in can happen, and the denominator is the number of ways that any relevant event can happen. On a coin, the relevant possible events are heads and tails. That's where that two in the denominator comes from. And the ways that we can get tails, what we're interested in, is just one way, and that's how we get that one over two. Easy peasy. That's how we get the half probability. To work with event-based probability, you need to be able to enumerate events and count them. That's why your textbook probably drags you through combinatorics till you're thoroughly sick of it. Combinatorics gives you the math that you need for counting the number of ways that events can happen, for that nice numerator and denominator that you're after. As a result, welcome to a bazillion homework problems all about how many different ways can I select 10 committee members from 100 candidates? The answer? 17,310,309,456,440. Or, how many different options can I choose when setting a four-digit PIN? 
the answer there? 10,000. That's the kind of stuff you learn in your combinatorics section in that textbook. In the event-based world, all building block events are equally probable so as to lend themselves to basic arithmetic unmolested by layers of messy modifiers. It's a world where all the coins are fair, all the dice are balanced, all the cards are unscuffed, and all the birthdays are equally likely. For the birthday problem, we need to know a quick something about counting. If you see the word AND, it's usually asking you to multiply counts. If you see the word OR, that's usually asking you to add counts. Go look up a proof if you like, or satisfy yourself with a quick example and move along. If I have two options for a vegetarian dish, or three options for a meaty dish, then how many meal options do I have? That's an OR, so we do 2 plus 3 equals 5 options. What if I can choose a main course AND one of two desserts? How many different meals am I choosing from? 5 times 2 equals 10. We got that multiply because it was a main course AND one of two desserts. Try it out with different concrete examples of dishes and write it all out if you don't believe me. Remember, AND asks you to multiply counts and OR asks you to add counts. Right, now that we've got that out of the way, what's the probability a randomly selected meal is veg-friendly? How many different meals was I choosing from? We had that answer of 10, remember? So that's our denominator. Denominator equals 10. Our numerator is two vegetarian options times two desserts equals four. So the answer is four out of 10 or 40%. Again, if you don't believe me, you might want to grab a pen and paper and try it out for yourself. Hey, how about combinations and permutations? The difference between a combination and a permutation is that order matters with permutations, but not with combinations. Think about this in terms of transplanting some pills from a big bag of different kinds of vitamins into one of two kinds of containers. If you take seven pills from 200 vitamin pills and you put them into one single container where they can kind of mix around, that is a combination, a combination of seven pills from 200. If instead you have a container that has each day of the week marked out, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, etc., and you're going to put one vitamin in each of these individual little spaces, so you arrange the order of these seven, not just sort of throw them all into the same bin, then you are getting a permutation, because order matters, a permutation of seven pills from 200. Now, if you think about this example for a moment, you'll see why the number of possible options is bigger with permutations than with combinations. If you run the numbers on choosing seven from 200, you'll see that the answer with combinations is a 13-digit number, while with permutations, it's a 17-digit number. And if you ogle the formula, you'll see that there's an extra term in the combinations denominator that removes the effect of ordering after selection, dumping all the pills into a single container and shaking it. Fun fact, your so-called combination by clock is actually a permutation with replacement by clock. Technically, a combination lock that opens with 1008 should also open with 0810, because in a combination, order doesn't matter. You're three chapters in, and all of a sudden your textbook forgets all about combinatorics. Just when you are getting the hang of those combinations and permutations, they're never heard from again. Instead, suddenly there are distributions everywhere. What's up with that? Consider this question. What's the probability that you need to wait more than 10 minutes for the bus? This is going to be tricky to count. I mean, how do we count it anyway? What, in nanoseconds? Picoseconds? It's going to be a pain, because counting events means you can't work with time as a continuous thing. It gets worse if you have a bus driver who has some probability of stopping for a smoke break that's dependent on how late the bus is already. How are you going to enumerate that? You're not. 
Maybe counting events isn't your friend here. Enter the frequency-based definition, which says something like, if this were a random event happening in infinite parallel universes, governed by rules I specify, <laughs> I mean, assume, in how many of them would the bus take more than 10 minutes to arrive? And you're thinking, parallel universes? What? Yeah, no wonder we statisticians have the crazy eyes. So that's the frequency-based definition with the multiple parallel universes. And then, usually much later, you'll hit the subjective definition in your Bayesian stats textbook, where you get to make the distributions up based on what you feel is likely. See what kind of twisted stuff you end up with when we take away your ability to enumerate events? Mm-hmm. Well, luckily for the birthday problem, if we assume that all 366 birthdays are equally likely, we can stick with counting. What, you don't like my assumption? Get over yourself. All of statistics is about making simplifying assumptions. The universe is a terrifying place otherwise. If you don't like my assumptions, you can come up with a different solution because mine is no good to you. Statistics gets creative because we're allowed to make any assumptions we like. You can learn more about that in my blog post, The Saddest Equation in Data Science. You might have heard that quote from George Box. All models are wrong, but some are useful. I sometimes like to misquote good old George and say all solutions are wrong, but whichever one fits the assumptions you're willing to live with just might be useful to you. The last building block that we need for the birthday problem is compliments, otherwise known as the humble not. And that's compliments with an E, not an I. Formula looks like this. Probability of not A equals one minus the probability of A. This is pronounced more politely in English as the probability of an event, which we've so happened to name A because we're uncreative, not happening equals 100% minus the probability of that event happening. So what's the probability of not getting a six on that die roll? That will be one minus one over six, giving us five over six. Okay, that's all. We're now ready to solve the birthday problem. But before we go there, why is the birthday problem also called the birthday paradox? The paradox has to do with the vast number of birthday possibilities in a group of people versus the surprising probability of a match. The resolution of that seeming paradox is to flip the problem and think about unique birthdays. So that's a little spoiler of what we're going to do, but let's get into it gently. The birthday problem. What was the question again? Ah, this. If you have n people in a group, what's the probability that there is at least one shared birthday? Let's try this with our Lego pieces that we've developed so far. Birthday denominator. How many birthday options do we have for one person? 366. How many birthday options do we have for n equals, say, 30 people? We have 366 for the first person, and 366 for the second person, and 366 for the third person, and so on and so on, and 366 for the 30th person. Put a multiply where all those ands are, and voila, the denominator equals 366 to the power of 30, equals, holy cow, that's a lot of digits, 77 of them if n is 30. That's more than a, whoa, how do I pronounce this thing? Quator vigentillion. Hmm, <laughs> what a word. Isn't naming things fun? Okay, birthday numerator. Prepare to get dizzy. We have to count all the different ways to have at least one match in any two people among these 30. So person one has 366 options and person 29 has one option because they match person one, but it could be person two and person 17 or maybe three people share a birthday, or, or uh, no, 
this is going to get messy too quickly while we run around trying to keep all the options straight in our heads. Which is what makes this such a fun homework problem. You're supposed to bang your head against it until you see the trick. Or until you beg the internet for the cheat code. Hmm. Is that how you found your way to this podcast? That's cool. I've got you. So what's that trick that solves the birthday problem? Instead of getting to the numerator by counting all ways that we can have people sharing birthdays, the trick is to rephrase the problem and count a much simpler thing, the opposite. The probability of at least one shared birthday equals one minus the probability that all birthdays are unique. So what we need to find is the answer to this. What's the probability that there's not any birthday sharing in the crowd? In other words, what's the probability that all birthdays are unique? So let's try this one. What's the unique birthdays denominator? It's still 366 to the power of n. By working with a complementary event, we've shifted our focus in the numerator. The denominator is unscathed. Okay, unique birthdays numerator. This is where the beautiful and glorious magic happens. The first person has 366 options for a birthday, greedy pig, and the second person now only has 365 options because we force them to have a different birthday from the first person. In other words, if person one is born on, say, October 8th, and we're forcing our room to have n unique birthdays in it, then we've got to turn all October 8th birthday folk away at the door after the first one has come in. Each applicant for the room has fewer options by one. So it's 366 options for person one and 365 for person two and 364 for person three and, 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 and 367 minus n for that last person n. If n is 30, put in the multiplication signs and boom, 366 times 365 times 364 times 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 340 times 339 times 338 times 337 equals, drum roll, wait for it, yuck, another number with 77 digits. But luckily for us, computers will handle the division for us if we just ask nicely. So probability that all birthdays are unique equals this ugly numerator number with 77 digits divided by that other ugly denominator number also with 77 digits. And when we get the computer to divide those two 77 digit numbers by one another, we get the lovely answer of 0.3. And that's of course rounded off to the capacity of my attention span. So finally, here comes the answer we want. The probability of shared birthdays in a group of 30 equals 1 minus 0.3 equals 70%. So with a group of 30, there's approximately a 70% chance of shared birthdays. I sure hope you didn't bet me that $10 that having shared birthdays was less likely than everyone born on a unique day in a group of 30. But if you did, I won't say no if you'd like to donate it to Wikipedia. Now look, if you took the wrong side of the bet, that just comes from a misunderstanding of how hard it is to get a room without duplicates. If you're the bouncer at the door, tasked with turning away people whose birthday slots are taken, it won't be very long before you turn away your first disappointed soul. Now, of course, all this depends on what n is. In other words, it depends on how many friends you have. So how does the answer change as you change n? With two minutes and r open on my laptop, I can plot the answer for every choice of n. If you're curious to know how the actual numbers go, Take a look at the blog post, where I show you a little simulation plus the R code that I made to get it for you. That blog post is, of course, linked in the podcast description, so check it out there. And of course, you don't have to use R for this. 
If you prefer a different programming language that can plot out a simulation for you, go ahead and use that. And if you want to know where that 50% happens, where you should stop betting for a birthday match and start betting against it, that 50% happens at n equals 23. In other words, if you have fewer than 23 friends, you should bet against a birthday match. What you'll also see in the simulation is that there is a 99% probability clash at n equals 55. If you're curious to see how this curve actually looks, go ahead and play with my ugly but functional little code snippet in the blog post, and you can do that right in your browser with R, no installs needed. So what do we actually learn in this episode? Besides some probability basics, like different approaches to probability, complements and what to put in the denominator and numerator, and counting principles, rule of sum and rule of product for or versus and, the thing to take away from this episode is why you're being taught certain concepts in a certain order. Why is counting such a big deal early on in your textbook and suddenly it disappears, leaving everyone disgruntled? Turns out that it's mostly a means to an end, since the assumption that all elementary events are equally likely is far too amateurish for most pros to stomach. Even for birthdays. So isn't it funny then that when non-experts think of what we stats folks do all day, they tend to think of card counting and coin tossing? Well, some rumors are hard to kill, but we usually move on to more interesting stuff pretty early. A big part of what makes the birthday problem a classic fixture of the statistics undergraduate experience is that it gives you just enough pain to rub a key point in. Budding statisticians need to learn how to rephrase problems so that their moving parts are easier to handle. The brute force approach is often too hard to calculate, so we learn to look sideways at things. If you opt for the statistics life, prepare for a lot of flipping and reversing. I'm Cassie Kozarkov, and this was Using the Birthday Paradox to Teach Probability Fundamentals. If you had fun here, the best thing that you can do is share this with someone. And of course, if you hated it, foist it on your enemies, that way everyone is happy. See you next time on the Decision Intelligence Podcast.